And let us pray. Grant us, Lord, we pray, the Spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who cannot exist without you may by you be enabled to live according to your will through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we're thinking on authority today. And so I'm thinking of a principal of a high school or a policeman or a magistrate, a judge, parents or a college professor. Those are a few examples in our society of what authority may look like. Now, perhaps not everyone would recognize all of those as legitimate authority. I wouldn't know why, but uh, from the things that we see in the news, apparently some wouldn't recognize these people as uh, legitimate authority and would not submit to them. But of course, that's what the, the are designed to do. Uh, and, and in that submission concept, I've been thinking about submission or resignation a good bit uh, lately. And two things come to mind. As, as, as you survey the uh, landscape, what, um, what is it that you see people willing to submit or resign themselves to or their lives to? Um, what is it that you see people uh, willing to uh, allow to control them? Uh, we have just right off, I'm thinking of cultural norms. That, that sometimes there are cultural norms that it, it's just the way we do things, and therefore this is the way we do. I, you know, I catch myself in this from time to time. And then it was helpful for us to, to uh, visit Rwanda because you're like, they don't do this, but why, why do we do that? Well, we just do that because that's the way we've always done. You know, and and there, there are some things that we do that are very, uh, I, I think, kind of maybe efficient and make it maybe easier. And when you when over in Rwanda, you don't see them doing that. Well, that's not their cultural norm. So I see cultural norms that, that might, maybe pe- people are willing to submit their lives to or, or resign themselves to. Um, that hurts habits and hang-ups, the, um, those addictions and things like that that can affect how people view themselves and view those around them. Um, I can imagine those things having an effect. Uh, other people and the pressure of, of uh, whatever, pleasing or being accepted by uh, other people. Um, the uh, fear of man. We, we are Christianese. We, we just say fear of man. Uh, but that would be the description of it. Um, a lot of times people will do things because they want to be accepted. So thinking through, you know, what do you see people willing to submit their lives to? And then the second thing I've been thinking about is uh, why are people resistant to submit their lives to Jesus? And, and there's this bigger sense that people need to submit their lives to Jesus, and I would say we certainly all have, but then there's more to this. Um, how, how do you see people resistant to re, and, and how are we resistant to resign our will to his? So there's this, when I just throw out the uh, submit your lives to Jesus, it may, you know, call up in as the way we think of it as, as salvation. And sure, and yes, Joe down the street needs to submit his life to Jesus for salvation. Yes. 
but then it's beyond that, and in our growing in Him, it's more and more of our lives need to be submitted to His Lordship. Because, you know, when we're convicted by Scripture, that's because we're, we're, there are areas of our lives that are still not really submitted to His Lordship. So, the, the two things, thinking of what do people submit their lives to, and then why are we, and other people as well, uh, resistant to submit our lives to Jesus. So when a professor or a, or a judge uh, renders their decision, there's resignation to that decision. Um, and, and I could say acceptance, and that might be an acceptance, but, there, but there's, gotta, there's, for me sometimes, and I, I've, I've had personal experience with both of these, even if I don't like their decision, there's resignation to their ruling. Why? Well, because they have authority. Why do they have authority? Well, they have, there are two reasons they have authority. They have authority because of their position, but the authority goes well beyond their position because it is also because of their mastery over the subject matter. You, 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 nobody's going to come down my street and just tap me to fill in as judge uh, over, uh, over some you know, circuit court. Um, you know, what, no matter what I might think, whether I would do well or not, they're just, I, I don't have the mastery over the subject matter. I, I don't know anything about that kind of thing. So these people have proven themselves to um, be effective and knowledgeable in their fields. And then they have, and, and, and I think of, of professors, and I've, I've had decisions by judges and professors that I didn't necessarily like, but then you just resign yourself to those decisions. Why? Well, because that's, that's that highest authority. It goes no further. And now it's a matter of reconciling our lives to these choices or decisions or the rulings. Well, this lesson holds up Jesus as beautifully powerful and full of authority, worthy of our submission. Last week we learned about... Um, Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, his, his hometown. And there he proclaimed the truth to the people, but when he proclaimed the truth to them about the rejection of Israel, the crowds became indignant and wanted to kill him. They did not recognize or submit to his authority. So he made his way to Capernaum, and this is the setting where we are today. He made his way to Capernaum, uh, which is a city of Galilee. And these people recognized his worthiness because of his authority in his teaching and his authority in power. So first we're going to look at authority in teaching. In verse 31 it says, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. So from, from Nazareth, he traveled to Capernaum, and it's a small town in the upper northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And though he traveled north, he went down in elevation. So um, Nazareth is about 1,200 feet above sea level. And then when he arrived at Capernaum, it's 686 feet below sea level. So he indeed went down, though he was going north. Uh, you were sitting around looking on the map, and you're like, that you know, 
the, the one, the Luke that wrote this, surely you know which way is up or down. Well, elevation-wise, he certainly went down. It was a fishing village. It had more diversity of, of people uh, than Nazareth, where Jesus was teaching in, in last week's lesson. Uh, Capernaum would have been known as Jesus' town, as, as it would become known as Jesus' town, because this is the place he would call home. On the Sabbath, humble, working people would gather in the synagogue, those who were fishermen, those who were craftsmen, uh, the laborers, and, and their wives, they would gather and, and, and to hear the lessons that were coming out of the synagogue. And they would have heard of Jesus' teaching because, you know, his, his reputation did precede him. You knew there was this uh, Nazarene who, who was creating all kinds of commotion. And so they would have likely heard of him, heard of some of the stuff that he had been doing. And so they were sitting expectant to hear from him. And, and, um, uh, you know, what, what all their motives might have been in, in anticipating his teaching, I don't know. But it's an, it's an interesting point that they came expecting. And I think as we come, I, I think it's a, there's even a lesson in that as we come to church, as we come to hear from the word of the Lord. If we're coming expectant to hear from the word of the Lord, um, if we're expecting to meet the risen Savior as we gather, then... Uh, then likely we will. Um, I, I think there are all kinds of reasons to uh, put roadblocks in front of us to, that which may impede our communion with the Savior because we got all kinds of issues of, of man's creation among us. But if we come expectant, I believe we will. If the word is truly preached, you know, the true word is preached, sacraments are administered, uh, and so on. So... When Jesus taught these people with all their expectancy, they were not disappointed. They were very pleased as they heard what he was saying. Now, pleased in this, in a, in a, uh, pleased may not even be a, a good word because this, this word, um, says they were astonished at his teaching. Well, this astonished in, in the Greek might mean panic or, or shock, um, they were struck with amazement. So it's, it's more than just, you know, something soothing to the soul. There's something that's jarring them, and they can recognize it's something significantly different. This teaching is something significantly different than what they've been hearing. Um, his, his teaching was different than these other teachers uh, that these people had heard. And this is, this is a, their reaction is a common reaction to those who would have heard Jesus. Um, because he taught with one who had authority. In Mark 1, 22, it says, He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Matthew says, uh, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, says, And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Well, so this teaching is something that's life-giving, it's 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 breathing air into them and and making them come alive. Why was it so significantly different than the scribes? The scribes would, and Pharisees would have quoted their 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 teaching was built on quotes. Their teaching was derivative. So everything everything that they taught 
was because of something somebody else said. One uh, such teacher was quoted in the Talmud, which is the body of Jewish civil and ceremonial law and legend. And there's a quote from a teacher in it who, who said, Nor have I ever in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. So their, their theology was second-handed at best. It was petty. It was legalistic. It was joyless. It was boring. So it, it, was, it was life-draining because they didn't have the gospel which frees. They could preach the law and teach the law based on what others said about the law. But Jesus is different. And when he spoke with authority, he wasn't quoting from these other teachers who had gone before him. He would say, that, and the way he used other teachers, he would say, well, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. So already, the, and, and this is one of those pieces where it's, uh, it's familiar text to us. We know that Jesus said that, so we're not shocked. Um, but hearing this in this time frame, this would have been a shock to the ears because Jesus is not dependent upon this body of stuff that had gone before him or these, uh, these teachers who had gone before him, and he's teaching quite differently. Also, in, this, in that same line of thinking, you know, in the Old Testament, when a prophet speaks, uh, he, he can say whatever he wants, but then when he's going to speak on behalf of the Lord, he is to say, thus saith the Lord, which is to get your attention so that you recognize that what I'm saying from this point forward is what the Lord is saying to you. Now, there's also dire consequences for this, and that's where when people claim to be prophets today, I'm like, really? You sure you want to do that? Because what you're saying better come true, or we must stone you. I mean, that's, so this is the Old Testament standard. Somebody claims to be a prophet, they say, thus saith the Lord. Well, that either has to come true, or we say they're a false prophet, let's go stone them. Which, we can't even wrap our minds around that. But that's how important that to accurately represent God's word was... But then that same, a parallel to that is in the New Testament when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, whatever your translation is, verily, verily, I say to you. He's not saying, thus saith the Lord. He, in, just, in, just in that, he's saying, I am the Lord. I say to you these things. So these are bold statements, bold ways to proclaim his authority. Um, and, 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 it's, and, and the way he demonstrates that authority. And this is, this is where there's some shock value to his lesson and his teaching, and people are hearing it, and they're paying attention because it's fresh and it's new. And, of course, it really is God's word. So they're being cut to the heart as they're hearing this. Jesus was... Of course, this, he has then authority because of his position. He is God, but he also has authority because of his mastery over his subject matter. So as he teaches on the Old Testament, he's, he is very gifted at taking Old Testament passages, teaching them and, uh, and teaching the people of how they point directly to him. Of course, we, we covered... Um, Oh, whenever that was, just was that last week that we covered? Uh, that was just last week. I didn't do that, but uh, 
Drew covered that where he said the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So he's Jesus enters the uh, temple at um, Nazareth, and he opens the scroll and he teaches from Isaiah sixty one, and he's and he's explaining of how this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing today. A beautiful, stunning. Um, his authority, where he takes Psalm 61, it points directly to him. This is at the beginning of his ministry. You know, later, the Sermon on the Mount, he, as he's teaching, um, that's basically an exposition of the Ten Commandments, or the law. So he's able to take the Old Testament and weave it in so that people recognize how it's pointing to him. He also quotes uh, or, or references, he, he references uh, Adam and Noah. He references all kinds of other Old Testament things and prophets and people. But I think it's interesting that he references Adam and Noah because in critical scholarship, the, there are people who would claim that Adam and Eve is not, they're not historically real. They are a myth. Uh, and then, of course, everybody would know that the story of Jonah has got to be just some story made up. But Jesus, you know, what do we say about that? Poor Jesus seemed to think they were true. And he referenced them like they are real. So that piece is interesting. But those are obviously Old Testament people and and, and their Old Testament stories, which, like I say, we think are myth at this point. But he seems to reference them as if they're real. And then... Uh, even after the resurrection, as he meets with the, the uh, Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus, he comes alongside them, and beginning with the uh, Moses and the, the prophets, he, he interpreted all of what the Scripture, meaning the Old Testament, had to say about him. So this, this, is, this is what uh, Jesus was doing, and how he taught. So he had mastery over the subject matter, and of course he had the position. Now, our teaching today is also derivative. You've probably heard me say, I don't have any new ideas. Everything I've said is based on something I've heard somebody else say. Um, and, that's, and that's really pretty much true. It's just the difference between us and the, um, and the scribes and Pharisees is... Our teachings today are based on the living Word of God. And so as the Word is proclaimed, and the, the, therefore the Holy Spirit goes out, um, and there's authority in preaching and teaching today because we're dependent upon the Word of God. This Word of God was obviously uh, fundamental for Jesus' teaching. And really, if the church is going to be effective in the world today, it must depend on the Word of God and proclaiming it accurately. I think that that's in, in our in our world today, in our current culture, in our current town. There's um, danger of using the Word of God to proclaim what we want versus teaching the Word of God to equip the people. I think if we're going to have an influence in the world. If we're going to, and I don't know if it's maintaining a position of authority. The church used to have a position of authority. In our culture today, the church, I think, in many ways has lost that authority. 
But in many ways, it's lost the true preaching of God's word. And so I think it's lost, the the church has lost credibility. So I think we need to have kind of a, a revived effort at teaching and preaching God's word and be masters of God's word. We need to stand on the word of God and we need to stand up for the word of God. I, 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 I know that uh, we think that if we were going to reach more people, it would be better if we had a better, whatever, light show, uh, a better, uh, bigger, um, you know, rock band, smoke machines and video clips. But uh, Paul said that preaching is foolishness to the unsaved. To the world, preaching is just foolishness. Now, I, and I understand we need to reach them somehow, and I think that's the effort. I think that's why you all invite people to dinner, is so that you can reach people. Um, and, and, I, and I think we uh, collectively need to do things to reach people and build relationships. But um, it is strange to me. I would think is in today's uh, world, with as much um, technology as we have, there would be more effective and more efficient ways of getting this kingdom message out so that people would become saved and God would utilize those things. Except, Paul told Timothy, and he tells us, to preach the word. And so we must. And it's this clear preaching of the word that is effective because of the authority of the word of God and by the Holy Spirit. And as that word goes out, it convicts and converts. It's the clarity of preaching that produces conviction in the center. So the next thing we're going to look at is authority and power. So if we look down in verse 33, it says, And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So Jesus was teaching with authority, with, with uh, power. These people were awestruck. They were, they were um, cut to the heart as, in the hearing of this teaching. And in the midst of this message is what it appears, in the midst of these people being amazed, in the, in the midst of of him being widely accepted and thought well of because of his ability and teaching, then one cries out, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So these these demons inside this man are indignant. And this is not, this the, the, the demon is not necessarily asking these questions. These are those rhetorical questions. He's not looking for answers. He is, he is aggravated that this light has come in to the to to his world you ever have you ever picked up a, a turned over a big rock and seen all the creepy crawly things go scattering away from the light they were quite at home in the dark but once light is exposed they're running and they're running toward the darkness we have a light and darkness thing going on here the light shows up it's exposing the darkness and the darkness has has got to to defend itself, though it can't. Uh, but that's that's what that's what we're seeing here. Um, he knows that Jesus can judge him and rightly destroy him 
and 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 like cast him in, cast him away, and today may be that very day. So he he knows a lot about who Jesus is. He knows the authority with which Jesus has, and he knows that Jesus is able to judge. And so there's this fear of Jesus. Now, and it, just a time out. Hold it. We'll we'll have to come back here, and I hope I can remember where I am. But if we're thinking of what is it, you know, went back to the beginning, what do you see people willing to submit their lives to? Why do you see, why do you think it is that people are um, resistant to submit their lives to Christ? Because you, you'll run on to people who have all kinds of uh, issues. And we live in a sin-filled world. We all have issues. I, I understand that. But there's this thing where I, I don't, I don't know how broken I am, so I run after all these things to fill my void, which continue to make me more broken. I don't recognize my brokenness, and I don't admit my brokenness, and therefore I don't get help. Now, that could be said of, of like the typical whatever, um, the alcoholic, the uh, addict, the whatever. But this is spiritually true uh, with everybody. Um, if... If one could recognize who Jesus is and that authority he has and the good that he's going to provide for them, I would think there would be a recognition of him and a running to him. But most of our, the folks who we want to see reached, they don't even know they're broken. And so I think it's very interesting that this demon recognizes who Jesus is he recognizes the power that Jesus has, and he is afraid. He, he's not, he's this thing about the fence, and he's just going to ride up here on the fence until he figures out, you know, is he really true? Is he really? That's not where the demon is. The demon, the Bible, Paul, I think it's Paul, says the demons believe and shudder. That's James. The demons even believe and they shudder. Here's the demon believing and he's shuddering. He's scared to death. He's scared for his being because he knows that Jesus can cast him out. Do we have that kind of fear? Do we have that kind of fear in that awe-filled sense of who Jesus is? At this time, it's, it's, it was widely thought that if one could call a person by their complete name, they might have mastery over them. So this, this demon is really not trying to get uh, Jesus to like him, but... He's calling Jesus by name in order to subdue him. But the authority of Christ in preaching here is inciting the demons, and it repels them. I think the, the authority that, uh, of, of Christ in preaching does that still today. It incites the demons, and it stirs in people a, troubled, uh, a troubledness that, they, that gets them unsettled. I think that's why we finally... I think we need that in order to come to Christ. We need an unsettled state. But how did Jesus respond? Did, 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 he, did he open up some special book and cook up a magic potion and say bunches of strange sayings over them? No, he spoke to the demon. Here's, here's the authority of God's word. Here's the authority of the word of Jesus. Verse 35 says, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. 
And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Well, how, if we were in the crowd that day, what would we be thinking? We'd probably be concerned about whether or not this guy was even going to die. Was, is he going to live? Is he going to die? What is going on here? And it, there are other stories about these uh, people being possessed by demons. It could be that he was he was even disfigured, and certainly appears to have been in this in the midst of this, where the uh, demon had thrown him down. But then the demon comes out of him, and what do we see? We see this this man get up, restored and complete, brought back, made whole. There's the beauty. There's the beauty of the gospel. There's the beauty of God's word. It brings one from this disfigured state. A, a, a wrong motive, a wrong inclination to a right and restored relationship. Verse 36 says, And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So these crowds were truly amazed at this point. He had authority in his teaching, but he also had authority in power. And he had authority... Because he really was the Holy One of God. The Spirit, we know, was upon him from the baptism which we talk, talked about. We know that he, he also had authority uh, because of his obedience. Paul had said that, uh, Paul says that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In him. He's saying that we have in him. But do you realize that the enemy has been disarmed? Do you live like the enemy has been really defeated? Or do you actually believe the devil is the one who has power over you and causing you harm? Jesus has defeated, has defeated the enemy. The first place, and we're, now we're at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and we understand that, that uh, the end of Jesus' ministry, there is a defeat of Satan, certainly, on the cross. But defeat came in um, the wilderness. At the beginning of chapter 4, as we talked about that, in, as Jesus was being tempted, but Jesus was obedient to the Word of God, re, referred to the Word of God, stood on the Word of God, upheld the Word of God, and he defeated Satan right then. So he's baptized, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, then he's led to the, to the wilderness, and he's being tempted, and he stands where the Israel before him fell, and therefore he already is, has defeated Satan. So as we get to this point in his teaching, and he's taught in multiple places by this point, he's just exhorting that same... Uh, authority over the demons. And then ultimately at the end um, of his ministry, uh, at the cross, Jesus destroys the power of the devil over us. Over those who are in Christ, he destroys the power of Satan for us. So are, do we still have indwelling sin? Yes. Are we still in a sin-filled world? Yes. Uh, can we suffer because of the effects of Satan? Yes. But Satan doesn't have power over us. So Jesus has broken that at this point uh, on the cross. That's, that's, this is what happens. And then at the very end of his ministry also, 
Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he charges them to make disciples. And then he says, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So he is, we, we have that presence of Jesus with us. Yes, that's, the context is as we're making disciples, yes, but as we're living out this calling, as he's called us to him, he is with us. So he has given us this freedom in him from that power of Satan. So for those who cling to Jesus, you can walk in victory because he has overcome the power of darkness. And Jesus exercises his authority to bring fuller life to those who follow and obey. And it's in the John 10.10 10 thing where uh, the thief comes to steal, steal, kill, and destroy, and I have come that they may have life and life abundantly. If we were to walk in the ways of Jesus, we will have a fuller life. With his goodness and beauty lifted high, his authority is compelling and attractive. We like his authority. Now, sometimes those symbols of authority, and especially if you're on the wrong side of them, can be intimidating, and we may not want so much to do with these positions of authority. But it's it, and I find I find this. I'm thinking that when the when the policeman is in his off duty. He probably has few friends and few that really want to be close to him. Um, there, there are some. There are some things that when people are gathering in these new places and they're introducing themselves, it, it's a it's a very welcoming thing that you know why well, you know I do this, I do this, and they, and there's fast friendships. When I say I'm a pastor, it's not it's not necessarily something that's uh, everybody's liking to hear and want to want to talk about. So. There, so there, there's something about our worldly authority which is not necessarily attractive or compelling, but Jesus's authority, because of this love of, with which he operates, it becomes very compelling, very attractive. Um, when we recognize his authority, when we submit our lives to him, when we resign our, our wills to his will, he brings purpose and meaning to our lives. But his authority is beautiful and life-giving. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, I think our question really is, to whom? Or to what will you submit your life? In the name of the Father, the Son, 